You're listening to The 80-20 Show, an inside look into the music industry. Hey everybody, welcome back to The 80-20 Show. I'm your host, Mike Zimmerlich, and my next guest is Gabe Kubanda. Now, Gabe and I go way, way back, and before I get started, I want to give a heads up that Gabe is an artist on 80-20 Records. Now, when I think of the word resilience, I think of Gabe. He started off being in several different bands, eventually landed on a show on VH1, which we'll get into in the interview. He's also ventured off into a solo career. He co-founded a touring company as well as a nonprofit organization. I mean, the list goes on and on. And I am so proud to not only consider him a colleague as well as an artist on 8020 Records, but most importantly, a very dear friend of mine. So it is my honor and privilege to bring you Gabe Kubanda. Hey, Gabe, thanks so much for joining the podcast. How are you today? Hey, Mike, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. It's amazing. I I was looking back and realized that we've known each other now for over nine years. How insane is that? That's so crazy. Time flies, man. (laughs) So amazing. But uh, I'm really glad that you came on board. I, I, you have such an amazing journey to tell, and I want to make sure that we incorporate all of it. So we're going to start all the way back to the beginning and about how you got into music professionally. Woo. Going back. Going way to back. a little GK. Well, I, I, I distinctly remember listening to um, a certain album when I was a really little kid that my parents would always have on. Uh, My parents had a record player and they were always playing this one kind of like jazzy horn uh, album. And this tune always was like stuck in my head. And later in life, I was like, what is this tune I remember? And it was um, that flugelhorn player from like the 70s. Um, What's his name now? Now I'm spacing on it. Um, Oh, shoot. What's his name? It wasn't Herb Albert, was it? Is that it was a Herb? Born seventy star. I'm just gonna look it up real quick. Yeah, just so the audience knows, he's literally looking it up right now. Chuck, oh duh, Chuck Mangione. Oh wow, okay. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, so I had this and, and had these melodies, and I was just like in awe. I don't know, as a kid, and my parents would just like play records, like Motown records. Uh, Beach Boys, Jan and Dean, Beatles, um, and a lot of Christian uh, 70s uh, music too, like Second Chapter of Acts and Keith Green, stuff like that. So um, I had all this music in the household. My dad played drums at church. My mom played uh, guitar and sang in church. And um, so there's always like musical instruments laying around as well. And it just kind of like naturally kind of occurred, even though at the beginning I was like, I don't want anything to do with music. I thought it was kind of hokey and goofy. Really? Yeah. So what made you change your mind? Um, I think in high school, I started listening to a lot more like, um, grunge and hip hop, classic rock, metal, um, R and B world music. And it started kind of opening up uh, more of what I thought about current music as opposed to like older music. And even though I really loved a lot of like 
you know, the doo-wop singers and uh, Chuck Berry and all these like, you know, Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and stuff. I started getting like more into like modern music at the time, like in the nineties and two thousands and stuff. And started being in garage bands, like up in Seattle, um, playing like garage church bands for youth groups and stuff like that. And just being horrible musicians, but just kind of like being horrible with a bunch of guys and getting a little bit better every time. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's very cool. And then um, what went, um, at that point you went into forming, what was the first band that you were in? Cause you were really into, you know, gra- like you mentioned garage bands, things like that what was like the first rock band that you were in. Well, to back up before I joined any band, um, I was in a high school jazz band and I was trying to play drums and I was really bad. Really? But I remember we did a, a lunchtime concert at our at our high school and I was playing drums and we did instrumental versions of like um, a Green Day song, like When I Come Around. And we did like a Leonard Skinner song and something else. Uh, and I was like, whoa, this is what it feels like to rock out with a band. And, um, and then I wrote my first song uh, as a senior in high school for my English class, like a, like a senior class, you could do something. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll I'm, t- I was very introverted and shy. Uh, and so I wrote a, a song about how I thought marijuana was bad and how you shouldn't do it. Cause it leads to crack. <laughs> Does that song exist somewhere still? <laughs> nope. Wow. I hope not. I, yeah. hope not. I think I performed it once for my high school English class, my AP English class. And um, it was, it was a train wreck, I'm sure. But then after <laughs> Dodge that. Dodge a bullet there. It, yeah. After that, I started jamming with my buddies um, at church. We had a Christian rock band called Coinfish for like two weeks. Uh, <laughs> based on the parable of Jesus and the coin in the fish's mouth uh we had a we had a band called seventh gear because it was one more than sixth gear so this was like turning it up to 11 turning it up to 11 yeah we played uh, a couple shows like that we had stickers made that had seventh gear on it um it was pretty awesome we thought we were pretty cool played like local youth groups around the seattle and gig harbor area and stuff and uh got our got one of our concerts shut down because we were playing in this field at a church on like a Sunday evening and an old folks home from across the road called the cops on us because we were too loud <laughs> so I remember like my one of my first like big outdoor concerts with like more than 30 people you know um, and playing and seeing like sirens coming down this dirt country road coming towards us as we're playing and going like, what's going to happen? <laughs> and it was the cops telling, calling us to shut down. Wow. So yeah. even back then you were still, you were getting into trouble. Breaking the law, breaking the law. <laughs> so then um, where does uh, Letters Burning come into the picture? Cause that was a band that really you were serious about um, at the time. Yeah. Um, my buddy, Corey Barker, who I'm still good friends with and he's a, a hip hop and pop producer. Uh, in LA. He and I met at uh, junior college at, um, in Puyallup, Washington. We had a math class together 
and um, we started jamming. He was playing bass and we became really good friends. And he found out about this music business program that UCLA had just started. And it was like after hours, um, evening classes, it's like an extension program. It's not really affiliated with UCLA. It's called UCLA Extension Music Business. And he was like, dude, I want to do this. You want to come down with me? And uh, I just turned 21. And I was like, hell yeah, let's do it. So we packed up in both our cars, drove down to LA. Our first night in LA, um, a guy swindled us out of the place that we were supposed to stay at and also stole Corey's car. What? He stole um, his car? Yeah. Wow. And um, it was a whole crazy thing. And we ended up sleeping on the floor of some random dude's house in Santa Monica uh, that we just begged because it was like three in the morning and we didn't have a place to stay. And uh, uh, my car was packed with all our, all my gear and amplifiers and stuff and couldn't sleep in the car. So yeah, that was our first night in LA. Started going to classes there. Um, Corey started learning how to use an MPC player. He started getting good with making beats. I started just working and I was doing worship at church, but we eventually formed this kind of like dark rock band called noise fall. That was, uh, kind of like Evanescence meets Deftones in Perfect Circle in a way. That was short-lived. Uh, then we started Letters Burning in LA. And so this was probably 2003, 2004, maybe, 2005, something like that. And I got vocal paralysis. I, I had stopped being able to sing at all. Uh, and, and barely talk for almost like a year and a half. Wow. And to this day, I still don't know how that happened or whatever happened. I was having a bunch of autoimmune disorder issues as well. Like I would just break out in hives for like a year and a half for no reason. I'd just be all itchy. My face would be like blown up and I look like I got punched in the face all the time. And <laughs> it was so weird. <laughs> It was really depressing. Um, and so we ha we found a singer, a different singer on, I think it was either MySpace. I think it was MySpace or Craigslist. And he came in and he was pretty cool. And he wanted to sound like Dave Grohl. And so we just started jamming and that's how Letters Burning came about. Wow. And is this, uh, so it was right around 2004, 2005. And uh, I know that Letters Burning, uh, how many albums has Letters Burning released? Uh, we put out three EPs and, and a bunch of demos and some singles. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And then was this, uh, to transition a little bit, is this the time that you got onto VH1's Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp? Was that right around the same time? That was, um, that was the transition and the crazy tumultuous exit from that band. Okay. Um, so Can we were... We Letters Burning was together for almost seven years, six, seven years. We had started doing Vans Warp Tour. We had won the Ernie Ball Battle of the Bands a bunch of times. We had a pretty intense live show, pretty exciting. Um, we were playing all the fun spots and opening up for all the like cool emo post-hardcore bands in the time. We were playing 
at Chain Reaction in Anaheim all the time. We're playing the Key Club and uh, the Troubadour. And, you know, um, we did a Hot Topic tour when those were cool. And that's, that's where the idea for doing the high schools came from was, is that um, we were like, well, where's, how can we just go to fans? Where, where do, where do people congregate? And we're like, oh, well, colleges and high schools, right? So we just started calling up high schools and asking if they wanted a, a free lunchtime concert. And a, a, a lot of them went for it and we ended up selling a bunch of merch <laughs> and getting a bunch of cool fans out of it and fans that uh, still follow me to this day, which is really, really cool. I so appreciate that. But as Letters Burning's members kept peeling off, we get new members and lots of inside fighting and egos going. Um, uh, I had uh, heard about this reality show audition for musicians and I brought it to my band members. I was like, guys, maybe this can help us get to the next level. Maybe we should all audition. And the lead singer was, um, was uh, I don't know. Later on, I figure I found out it's, it's kind of like a mentally abusive relationship where um, he just uh, kind of is very controlling and stuff. He wouldn't let us other band members work with other projects, do their solo projects. Was very fearful of people leaving him. And um, he said, if anybody does this audition, they're out of the band for good. And I was like, really? All right, screw it. I'm out later. So I left the band. I was, I was done with the BS and, um, and just done with me doing everything. I was managing the band, booking the shows for the most part, doing all the back end stuff uh, in addition to helping write the songs and, and paying for things, you know, like this is just not equal, you know, and I got into, into a band to have fun and make music with my friends and be equal and not being this weird, controlling verbally abusive kind of relationship that was happening that must have been not an easy decision to make especially since you've been putting so much into that band to to be able to move on from that and realize that it was not a healthy relationship at that time it it was the hardest time in my life because um multiple things kind of happened within one year not to get too too depressing but um Within like one year's uh, span of time, I left my band. We were having a lot of problems for many years, left the band. My full-time day job, accounting job, uh, went belly under with the economy. I was, so I was uh, jobless. I had broken up with my girlfriend of like four or five years. We were living together and my mom passed away uh, due to cancer. Uh, and it was a long battle for her. So it was this crazy buildup of just all this stuff within a year's time that just kind of just took it out of me. And I was just like, I'm done. And I don't need, I, I was like, I don't even know if I want to do music ever, you know? And uh, so when all that kind of stuff hits you all at once, you know, you kind of have to make a choice to kind of give up or, or dig in deeper. And I had almost given up, but, I went and did that audition for VH1 and I didn't know what it was at the time. Um, and I actually got the role and I got to play myself on this 
crazy reality show with all these, uh, you know, legendary rock stars and um, producers and stuff. And I was like, okay, I can do this on my own. I don't, I don't need, I don't need the band because before I was always like, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. Uh, I don't have what it takes. I need uh, the nucleus of, of being in a band. Plus I, I had stage fright. I could only be on stage if I was with my band members. I was the guitarist, but I wasn't the front man. I didn't want to be a front man. I was happy playing guitar with my guys do, having the limelight, you know? So it was just a crazy shift uh, of everything. What do you, was there uh, anything specific uh, that you remember that helped you just make that decision to go for that audition because of so much that was going on with your life at the time? Was there a particular moment that you decided, you know what, I am going to dive deeper into this? Uh, I think it was the dealing, it, I think it was dealing with the loss of my mom that helped me realize that I shouldn't quit. Cause I was thinking like, like I've always wanted to make her proud. I've always said like, you know, like, you know, mom, when I get, you know, when I get my first million, I'm going to buy you a house, <laughs> you know, like all this stuff that you want to do for your mom. You want to take care of them. And um, I know that she would have wanted me to, to continue and, um, and follow my passion and follow my dreams and not just do the status quo of what everyone else is doing. And so I think that really propelled me forward and is like, okay, I'm going to give this one more shot, you know? Well, yeah. I'm glad, glad that you did. So it, was there any, any uh, lessons that you've learned while being a part of, cause I'm, I'm sure that was an amazing experience being part of rock and roll fantasy camp. Was there any particular lessons or anything that you've learned from that experience? Tons, so many. Uh, I realized uh, from the first day that uh, I had been operating on such a subpar level when it comes to musicianship, networking, um, the entire music industry. You know, I, I thought I knew what it was all about and I really had no idea. And the first day that they threw us in there, we were performing for like all these rock and roll royalty <laughs> and realizing, oh man, I, I can't, I don't think I can hang. I'm going to get cut for sure the very first day, you know, and I didn't and uh, just kept going on. And I, I learned how to be confident in my own skills and my own unique um, thing that I have, even if it's not the best, even if it's not the most professional, um, I just vowed to watch and learn and listen and see how these guys do it. And uh, I still, I still, you know, think about that all the time and think about the lessons I've learned. That's incredible. So after rock and roll fantasy camp, now you're pretty much on your own working on, on your own solo career at this point. And going back where you mentioned about reaching out to high schools, I know that kind of uh, germinated an idea which is now called Epic Proportions Tour. So can you talk more about that and how that formed and how you met your business partner, Pete? Yeah, um, about the same time uh, that I, actually it was on my birthday that I met Pete uh, in March. The taping for the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp was in April. I hadn't done it yet. 
I was thinking about quitting my band and um, our mutual buddy, Mark Wynn, was having a party out in uh, Vegas, like a record release party out in Vegas. Uh, just so happened to be on my birthday. We had a break from the tour of, of my band's tour. We were on this high school tour at the time. We had like a week off, I think for spring break or something. And I was like, I gotta get out of this band. I don't know what to do. So I drove out to Vegas by myself um, to hang out with Mark and some other musician buddies and to just ask him like, what do you think I should do? Because <laughs> I'm like lost, I don't know what to do. And so I was talking with him and, and, and he was kind of guiding me through, you know, just giving me some, some really great advice like he always does. And he's like, oh, hey, my buddy Pete just rolled in. Uh, you're going to be crashing with him tonight because <laughs> we didn't have enough room in our hotel room. So you're going to be sleeping like on the floor or something in his room. I was like, all right, whatever. And that's how I met uh, uh, Peter, my business partner. We were just talking. He had bought a school bus, like it's old, nasty old school bus that they threw in some couches in and they were doing a tour to South by Southwest for with some artists. Um, he showed me the bus. I was like, this is ghetto AF, you know, <laughs> and looks pretty dangerous, but looks also really fun. And I was like, well, you know, I'm doing all these high school shows with my band, but I, I might, I think our time might be coming to an end and I've got this VH1 show. And he's like, well, I got this bus if you ever want to tour or, you know, or if you ever need a manager, you know, and I was like, all right, well, think about it. And then after the taping of the reality show and I started realizing like, okay, I'm going to do this. I started recording with my buddy, Corey, again, he produced my first little EP called let's see what happens. And I titled that because I literally had no idea what was going to happen. I was just like throwing spaghetti on a wall and like, all right, <laughs> to the wind, <laughs> you know, like, let's see what happens. And um, I hit up Pete. And I was like, hey, what's up? You know, uh, are you doing a tour? Is there room on the bus for one more? He's like, oh, well, I just had this band cancel on me. Uh, but we only have like half of our dates booked, like less than half of our dates booked. And I was like, well, I do all these high schools. I could book up the rest of the dates pretty easy with my connections and stuff. He's like, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Pete. And we're like, this is, this is becoming, this is, this could be a thing. Let's not just make it a, just a one-off. What if we brand it something crazy? And we were coming up all the, all these names and I was like getting tired and frustrated and all our names sucked. And I was like, what about the tour of Epic Proportions? Like something just dumb. And he's like, oh, Epic Proportions tour. And I was like, eh, all right. <laughs> And it just kind of stuck. It, it was kind of funny at the time. It was tongue in cheek because it was literally just a bunch of ragtag bands in a, in a crappy old school bus. Uh, but it ended up being this, you know, I mean, we're in our ninth year now, I think. So it's, it's nuts. That's incredible. And I didn't realize that was a major part of that story. Like about, uh, it's amazing about coming up with the name. Sometimes you, if you think about it too hard, 
it you just come up with the worst names ever but it's those random light bulb moments where you're just super tired or it just kind of like just clicks like it's just something clicks and you're like that's the name you just know right away that's going to be the name <laughs> so i want to now include uh where we met because this is where i come in to the picture uh in part of your story because at the time i was living in los angeles actually and I went to this conference called the IMC Conference, the Independent Music Conference uh, by Noel uh, Ramos. And uh, it was completely on a whim that I went to it. It ended up being one of the best conferences I've ever been to, even to this day, because it was so uh, intimate that I got a chance to not only network with all the audience members, all the everyone that went to the conference, but also all the panelists as well because they were very readily available and was more than willing to talk to you. And uh, some of my uh, good friends that I'm still friends with today, I met through that conference. So I actually met uh, this individual, uh, Les Scott, who is a mutual friend of ours as well. And we, uh, he mentioned about NARAP, which is the National Association of Recording Industry Professionals. And so he recommended I check it out and... At the time, I was still living in Los Angeles, but was visiting a lot in Phoenix. And so when I went out to Phoenix, he suggested to meet uh, both you and Peter, who were both members of the organization. So that's how we met. I remember the very first time we met, we met at uh, Starbucks um, in down in like the midtown downtown Phoenix area. And uh, that's that's we just clicked right away. And we both had, we had uh, high ambitions for our businesses. And uh, I think we just got along really well. Yeah. Yeah. I so. enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. And that was a time that uh, I, I, this is one of my, uh, uh, one of your craziest stories, but this was literally a month after the, I guess the second tour or the first tour where uh, so, certain something happened to the vehicle. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So can you tell more about that story? Oh, man. Yeah. Um, uh, on our second tour uh, with the Epic Proportions Tour, um, I had a band called Lost in Atlantis from Phoenix um, and a artist and his hired musicians. Uh, this artist's name was uh, Thomas King. He was this Austrian um, like soap star i think back there and um really great singer and performer he performed for all this like royalty over in europe and stuff and he's just a amazing um singer and performer so he had hired this band from uh musicians institute some some uh guys through there and it was uh so it was those two bands and myself and peter and a couple interns college interns that just went with us on this school bus um, that ran on vegetable oil, by the way. So the only way that we could get across country because none of us had any money was um, by filling up at the grease pits and the oil, the, the big black oil um, containers in the back of like restaurants. And so it was the nastiest thing, you know, every city we'd have to put on gloves and get dirty and get gross putting this giant suction cup or suction thing hose into these used oil vats, waste vegetable oil, sucking it out to be used. And the filters would clog because we couldn't filter it properly. It was just so nasty. It smelled like 
burnt fries and wontons the entire time. Oil would spill, get all over your gear, clothing, you couldn't get it out. So gross, but so much fun. So many great memories. Um, we had had a, a guy from LA weld in these tiny little bunk beds into the school bus. And so we all crammed in on that, but he, we didn't pay him enough or something, but he didn't sand off the weldings or, or the joints. So we would just get cut by metal all the time if we didn't like wrap them with stuff. And it was, <laughs> it was dangerous, man. It was a liability. And so we went on this crazy uh, tour um, all over the Southwest, down to, uh, to South by Southwest in Austin. Um, we were coming back, it was uh, maybe a month or two months long, I can't remember. We we're coming back up California, going up the I-5 towards uh, the Bay Area. It was right past the Grapevine, if you guys know where that is, on the, on the 5 freeway, about 4 or 5 in the morning. Um, uh, I was sleeping in the back bunk. We had one guy driving and a co-pilot keeping him awake, our buddy Tim Pinedo. And our bus was super slow, so we could only go like 55 miles an hour tops, top speed. So we're in the right slow lane. A trucker in the left lane is going much, much faster. I can't remember, 75, 80, 85, I don't know. Had fallen asleep at the wheel, gunned it, and drifted into our lane going much, much faster. Um, so <clears throat> all the rest of us are sleeping. We wake up to just this jarring, crashing sound and immediately feel acceleration because this vehicle has crashed into us and is pushing us and faster and faster and faster <laughs> and until the point very quickly to where our bus careens off the road, hits soft pavement in the median and literally flips three or four times midair horizontally in this cylinder before crashing. Uh, and of course, everyone blacks out. Uh, I don't remember a thing. And then I'm waking up to burning diesel fuel smells, vegetable oils <laughs> all over. Um, it's pitch black, people are screaming. Um, and uh, we just don't know, we're all disoriented, we're all shell-shocked. Uh, and we're, anybody who's coherent is just trying to pull people out of the bus. The bus is on its side. Um, and the, the doors and the windows were all blocked and blasted. So we had to crawl through the front window that had been broken or somebody busted it out. I can't remember. So we're all helping people out. I remember one of my good buddies, Quentin, I was standing on him. Me and, me and another guy, we were standing on him. We didn't even know because we were standing on gear and debris and we're like, where's Quentin? And he had been knocked unconscious and we couldn't hear him. And we're just like stomping all over his face pretty much. <laughs> wow. We had to pull him out. Um, we got everybody out. Everybody survived. It's, uh, you know, we all had pretty bad injuries, a lot of nerve damage, but uh, we all survived. Thank goodness. And, live to tell about it so that's our crazy bus story that's incredible and you know yeah you guys are very lucky that all of you guys made out of that so very very fortunate of that case yes yes 
uh, once you go through, anybody who has any, had any near-death experiences knows how precious life is after that. Oh, I'm and sure. I think that makes you uh, appreciate it that much more and, and go for it that much more. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't that long after that happened that, you know, because it was closer to the end of that tour run. Uh, it was only a couple of months later that you went back on the road again. Yeah, uh, basically, uh, the ones of us who got out of the hospital uh, um, or had less damage, um, we had a summer tour fully booked at uh, mostly military bases and festivals. And we bought an old shuttle bus with, that had no AC, and we just went for it. And uh, it was it was so rough and, and so difficult, but uh, it just paved the way ever since and also to uh to to put into context for the most part especially for future tours so the, i know pete was invo- uh, more involved with the couple of the original ones but after a couple tours in you were pretty much the one that was on the road you, you know driving the bus um uh, you know pete was doing the, all the work behind the scenes at that point in time you know making sure our, you know shows are getting booked and so forth but you were managing the tour itself mm-hmm. so you're playing the role of as a performing artist, as well as not only met, dr- literally driving the bus, but also managing the artists that were with you going on these tour runs. So I'm sure you've, there's been a lot going from both sides that you've learned as well. Is there any, anything that you learned there as far as both being a manager as well as a performing artist on the road? Yeah. Uh, I, and, and the lessons were hard, hard won at times, you know, um, because we started this, we didn't know what we were doing you know, and, um, we just had to figure it out through failing and trying again and trying again. So, uh, being a musician, but also having to be responsible for people, um, looking out for, for people, taking care of people, um, uh, and knowing how to, tour manage effectively, especially when there's deadlines and uh, just crazy things that happen on the road, right? You never know if you're going to hit a storm or uh, a a crash or cancellations or whatever happens, right? Um, You really, I I really learned how to go with the flow and um, roll with the punches instead of, uh, you know, saying, Oh, well, that didn't work out. Sorry, we're going to give up now. You know, it's like, well, that didn't work. All right, how do we make it work? Or how do we pivot? And how do we survive? And how do we um, keep this keep the show going? And it's been rough, because I expect a lot out of myself. And so in turn, I expect a lot out of my musicians that are on the road with me, because we're all in it together. And if, if one person's not pulling their weight, it really affects everybody else. And it's very difficult not just to get things done on time and to, to accomplish what we're setting out to accomplish, but also for morale. If uh, one person is not pulling their weight, the other people start snickering or talking behind their back and just gets this unhealthy level of trust. But also being the peer, but also trying to manage everything, um, you know, walking that fine line of friend yet manager or tour manager and keeping everything going was really tough for me because uh, learning how to uh, talk to other people at, at their level of where they're at and where I'm at 
um, sometimes doesn't always come across the right way. And so I had to learn that. I know Brad Amick and I used to fight all the time <laughs> from Allison. From Allison, yes. I love him dearly. We're, uh, um, he's one of the most genius guys I've ever met. Uh, but man, is it hard to get him up in the morning. <laughs> we both love you, Brad. <laughs> we love you, Brad. And um, so I, I, you know, over time I had to learn how to, you know, uh, you know, get on his wavelength and, uh, and, and he as well, we kind of figured out a good work, but yeah, there was times where it was rough. So, but that's, that's any working relationship, you know, and when you're dealing with multiple people on every tour, um, but uh, you know, I have love for all, for all my, all my tour mates. Absolutely. And in the meantime, you were still working on your solo career, correct? Yes. Yes. What are the main differences that you found between being in a band in comparison to being a solo artist? Have you discovered? Um, the differences between being a solo artist and being in a band are quite a lot. I mean, when you're in a band, you have this camaraderie, you have your buddies on stage with you. Uh, you know that you're not alone. You're sharing in the duties and, um, sharing and everything. Um, and I really love the collaborative process when it comes to songwriting. I always have taken kind of, um, I tell people this, it's like a comedian's or an improv comedian um, approach. So if you ever see improv, really, really good improv com comics, they never shoot down ideas. They never um, say, no, that's horrible, do this instead. It's always, they always say yes and. So if you're in improv, somebody does something, you build on that. You take what they, they've done and you expound on it or you take it in a unique direction, but you never shut it down. And I, um, I, I've always approached that with songwriting with other people. I might suggest things, oh, what if we did this instead if I didn't like the idea? But I never shut it down and say, oh, that's stupid, <laughs> you know. And so that's why I think people like to write with me um, and stuff because, you know, let them shine and see where I can kind of fit myself in as opposed to saying, oh, no, that's horrible or do it my way or something like that. Um, being a solo artist, it's, it's tough for me creatively because I kind of am kind of split brain. I'm not super creative. I'm not super businessy, but I'm somewhere in between. So um, I've written a lot of my songs by myself, but I find that the ones that I enjoy the most are ones that I've had um, input on. Like my latest song, Let's Ride, I had the guitar riff and the idea for the song for like three years. In fact, uh, my friend Kylie, she was on, she was merch girl on our tours for a while. We were sitting in the, in the tour bus and at a like an RV park or something. And I was making fun of her for some reason. And I wrote, I was just like sing-songy making fun. I, I have nicknames for everybody and I make up songs for everybody. And I just was like singing something stupid about something about her hair or something and uh, doing this little riff. And that riff ended up turning into Let's Ride. And I brought it to my producer, Curtis Douglas, who had, who had produced Damn Plans as well. And he's like, oh, that's, oh, I love that riff. Let's do something with that. 
you know, and he really helped take it into that super pop direction that it, that it is now. Also, full disclosure, Let's Ride single from Gabe is on 8020 Records. So make sure that's not too biased here. But yes, Let's Ride is is uh, one of the songs on our label. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. <laughs> so I want to also talk about uh, a little bit more about our relationship as well, because now now as a solo artist, you are on 8020 Records. But, you know, let people know, I mean, that was eight, nine years in the making. I mean, this only happened fairly recently where you actually became officially on 8020. But in all those years, we've done so much work together behind the scenes that people don't even realize. And I always give credit where credit's due. And if it wasn't for both yourself and Pete, there's no way I would have been able to do as much as I was able to do with 8020 Records because you've opened the doors for me to how to approach brands and you know, companies and all kinds of different organizations and how to go about doing that. And you gave me a lot of confidence myself too, because I had no idea. I didn't uh, also at the time I felt that you know, it was only 8020 was only a few years old. I had no idea what I was doing. And I really didn't feel like that I was a, that I had the right, if you will, or had the credibility to approach these companies. And Nothing could be further from the truth because these are brands that legitimately want to see other people succeed and they sometimes prefer to work with individuals who are at the ground because they want to build a legitimate relationship with them. And it's something that I've never really understood or realized at the time. And you and you and Pete were really diving deep into this and you were unafraid, you know, just full at it just seeing what can be done and how to, to build these incredible partnerships. So uh, I, I cannot thank you both enough because you've had such an, an important impact on 8020 records. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you, man. That's, that's awesome. I've always, um, I've always liked connecting people and I've always liked people who are connectors. Um, our, our buddy Mark Wynn is a great connector he is the actor, right? <laughs> um, and I, I've, I've just always loved that, you know, taking like, oh, hey, meet this person. He does this. This person does this. You guys should talk. And it's like, that's how you meet so many good people who um, through those connections that way. And uh, I want to be that too. And I love <clears throat> hooking up my artists with other people. Um and uh, deals and, and, and things and just helping people grow. That's the whole ethos of the Epic Proportions Tour. We'd throw a bunch of bands on the bus and we'd all get new fans together. We'd all grow together. We'd all, you know, if one of us rises, you know, we all kind of rise. So, um, you know, I just love that. So anytime I can help you out, you know, and, and you realize that and you return the favor tenfold and that's how the world should work. You know, I agree. And and that took time because in even the beginning, we would we would give help each other out and like, you know, maybe throw each other a contact or two here and there and so forth. But it got to the point where literally and I, I, I I'm saying this now uh, that there's only a very few select people, if anybody else outside of you and Pete, where I would bring them into uh, an important meeting and vice versa. You guys have done that numerous times where we would actually go to each other's meetings with some large companies. And because we, we understood that 
we respect each other that if it's your meeting, then I be quiet in the background and just be a fly in the wall. And that you would, I know that you would give me the opportunity to introduce myself, but that was your meeting. And I respected that fact. And then vice versa, you guys were always respectful when I had a big meeting like that and you just be the fly on the wall for a little while. And then I would introduce you so that you could be able to establish that contact as well. I mean, we make a, we tag team the NAM convention like no other because we know who, who we're reaching out to and how we're going to share contacts and how to be respectful for each other, but, but also at the same token, be able to bring opportunities to the table for both of us at the same token. And that's, you know, that, that's something that's very particularly rare to get that kind of relationship, but it, it, it's so important to have people that you can trust like that, that are going to want to help you succeed and is willing to give you you know, those opportunities and then vice versa is making sure that at the same token, you're respecting that fact that you're respecting that and acknowledging that they're helping you out so much and respecting their time and respecting that, that contact or that resource that they're giving to you. Yeah, totally. Totally. And networking is, is such a difficult thing for a lot of people. It was difficult for me. I actually, I I learned from Pete quite a bit. I got to give him big props. He is fearless. He'll walk up to anybody and start chatting. It's <laughs> true. Very true. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't do that. Uh, I, but, um, but now I can. Uh, but it took a long time to build that confidence because I was such a shy guy um, and not knowing how to approach people, not knowing what to say. And, uh, uh, but he just went for it. He, uh, you know, and uh, that's something that I 100% took from him, you know. And I took from both of you because also yeah. same thing. I mean, even the speaking engagements that, you know, you've, you, you guys paved the way for that for myself too, of speaking at all these different types of panels and mentoring at South by Southwest and speaking at NAM as well. That was through you guys showing me this is how it can be done. And it's not a scary thing. And it's a totally a possible thing to be a part of. To be honest, there probably wouldn't even be the 8020 show because of this, because I, I had a fear of speaking in front of a group of people. And I, I mean, I took taken public speaking classes in the past and I've done some things here and there, but nothing where I'm speaking in front of hundreds of people at an industry conference like that just never even was on the radar for me mm-hmm. until I seen you do do that. And once I did it a couple of times and I was nervous as hell the first couple of times, but after that, you just get used to it. And now I have no problems going up on stage and ha- just have a good time and just, you know, totally relax and just go with the flow. But, um, you know, I learned a lot from you and, you know, it's so important to have those type of relationships and to surround yourself with people who will put you into position to let you grow in your own way, but get you out of your comfort zone at the same time at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I agree. So I would be amiss if we didn't talk about some of your most recent endeavors. So I'd like to talk more about Edgy Musication, which is uh, both a, essentially a branch of Epic Proportion Store, but also uh, an evolution, if you will, to what Epic Proportion Store stands for. So can you talk more about Edgy Musication? Yeah, Edgy Musication. Um, oh, that's my dog trying to get out. Bodie, knock it off, boy. Um, edgy Musication is kind of a, a natural progression from the Epic Proportions Tour that's kind of symbiotic with the Epic Proportions Tour. When we were doing our shows, we'd be doing a lot of assembly shows, lunchtime shows, after school sh- concerts, stuff like that. 
And um, we started noticing that like the musicians, kids would always be like hanging out and want to talk with us afterwards as we were breaking down. Um, or they'd skip class to come watch us set up and like, what's that? What's that microphone? What's that do? What, what kind of drum is that? And we just like hang out with them. And, and after a while I'd be like, here kid, wrap this cable, <laughs> you know, like here, you want to play my guitar? Sure. Uh, just don't drop it, you know? And I was like, well, how come we're not uh, going into these music classes? Why not? You know? And uh, after a while, I just started taking the band members in the ones that had a little bit of a break or the, we weren't tearing down quite yet. And just being like, Hey, can we see what your choir kids are doing? Can we see what your band class is doing or your, your guitar class? And then they'd ask us to play something for them or um, they'd play something for us and we'd, we'd give them our feedback um, and give them our, our experience and some crazy tour stories. And it was just kind of this natural thing. And we're like, man, we're, we're doing this all the time anyways. Why don't we um, name it something? And I came up with the name Edumusication. I thought it would be just a, I always think Edumication, like, you know, oh, I, I got me some Edumicated, you know, like some hillbilly hick. And I thought it'd be funny to, to name Edumusication instead. And, um, we just started doing that almost at every high school that we would do. And it was just really cool to see these uh, high school kids um, uh, stick with us afterwards. And um, in fact, a great story that just happened last week is one of the high schools that we went to, this kid uh, would always stick around, ask us questions uh, about gear and stuff. He ends up graduating, goes to a recording college, crass, in, in Mesa or Tempe. And uh, then uh, just emailed me about getting an internship, you know, through our company. And so it just almost, it just came full circle, like, you know, um, and I thought that was just such a cool thing of like, okay, we gave this kid some hope, some ideas. Uh, he already had a natural, you know, um, what am I trying to say? Like, uh, interest in in all this stuff and he was kind of going towards that uh, with music classes in high school and he continued that on and i just thought that was the most amazing thing so yeah now epic uh now edu musication is a nonprofit. we're a 501c3 and we're offering this to to schools um on on the regular and we've even taken it to australia uh and we've also taken it to the uk and uh, denmark and sweden and we were supposed to go into Germany this year, which was going to be amazing. Um, but with COVID happening, we're doing everything virtual this for the rest of the year. So that's going to be a new kind of a rebirth of edumusication, pretty much hosting webinars kind of like this, but for high school students and high school teachers who are um, doing distance learning this fall because of the, the pandemic. And we're still going to be able to give that kind of experiential fun um, training to kids about the music industry, um, that way. That's fantastic. And somebody who personally believes so much in music education, both 
from a technical standpoint to understand the musicianship, but also the practicality of what you can do with that afterwards is, I think, so important. I think that's something that unfortunately gets overlooked quite often as far as, you know, people sometimes see music as more of a hobby or a passion, which is completely fine. In fact, I tell sometimes musicians all the time that you don't have to make it into a career. If you just love to you know, make music because you love to make music, that's great. But there are other people that they don't know what they want to do with their lives and what kind of career they want to pursue. And sometimes it's not even on their radar that music can be a viable option for them. And it doesn't necessarily mean being a rock star or being a band or anything like that. There are so many possibilities that are out there. So uh, it is a wonderful, wonderful organization. And I'm glad that you are doing this because especially these days, that's what you know, a younger generation needs to understand and, and, just having that gateway into all these different types of possibilities for themselves. Yeah. It's been so rewarding. Like I, with my not very formal music training um, it, growing up, I basically learned the guitar by myself. My mom taught me some Beatles chords, you know, and I listened to the radio and tried to pick out things. That's how I developed my ear, but I didn't learn music through my high school jazz band class uh, because uh, a number of reasons, but I, I was very, very shy. I didn't want to stick out. And uh, my teacher just didn't really care to put, put it honestly. Um, stuck in the past was all about Count Basie. And I was learning, I was listening, starting to listen to metal and hip hop. And he would always say that new music is trash. They're not real artists. They're not talented. And that kind of thinking turned me off from music uh, for quite a while. And I would just play in my bedroom and as a hobby because, or with my garage bands, it's just fun. But because a teacher had told me that there's no career in music, it's just a hobby. And you can't play modern music. You can't uh, do these things. You can only do jazz. And I wasn't good enough for jazz. I could barely play the drums, barely play the guitar, you know? So now with teachers especially younger teachers teaching music and understanding that world that there is so much more to music than a very small subset subset uh and the music world not just the performance but the technology the creative creativity on all sides the marketing the advertising the entire recording industry is so vast um why limit yourself and, and, and cut yourself off from all these other great opportunities. So that's what edgy musication is. I want people to have a better musical experience in their teens than I had uh, and to get a jump on it and not have to go through all the craziness that I went through to learn it on the fly. They can just learn from me instead. <laughs> that's incredible, Gabe. Uh, what, where is the best place that people can find you? GabeKubanda.com, of course, on all the socials. Uh, it's all the same, at Gabe Kubanda. And um, I don't know when this is going to air, but uh, Let's Ride is out. We've got a music video coming out. Uh, got a bunch of stuff in the works. So uh, stay tuned. By the way, we, can, we always accept donations through edumusication.org. So if you'd like to fund uh, modern music education, hit us up shoot us a few bones. We'd appreciate it. It'll go directly towards um, 
planning and putting on more edumusication sessions for students all across the country and across the globe, actually. That's incredible. We'll make sure that we have all that in the description for this episode as well. So thank you so much, Kate, for being on board. And uh, we'll see you guys all next time. Thanks, Mikey. Peace. Hey, everybody. Before we go ahead and sign off, I want to do something a little bit more different on this episode. First of all, for everyone who's been listening, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. This was something that I really didn't think I was going to get into into doing any kind of podcasting, to be perfectly honest. And uh, I, I didn't know if people were going to really enjoy it or what the case was. And so it was it was kind of a re- really an experiment of mine to see if people really do enjoy it. So first of all, I want to thank all of you who, ha- who are just either starting off listening to this podcast or listen to all the previous episodes, whatever the case might be. So for me to say a little bit thank you from time to time i'm going to put in the end of these episodes a little gift if you will and that could be anything could be like a discount on merchandise from the 8020 store it could be pretty much whatever whatever comes to mind to be perfectly honest but i wanted to for this time around at least because it is the season of giving is i want to give out a free coaching session so this would be a personal coaching session from myself and I'm going to select a couple of people. I can't promise everybody. But um, if you are interested, if you're a musician yourself, or if you know of a musician that might be needing some coaching, especially moving into 2021, since we have no idea what 2021 is going to bring, uh, especially when the in the music industry, uh, please feel free to reach out to me. My email address is Mike, that's M-I-K-E, at 8020records.com. Again, that email is M-I-K-E at 8020records.com. And just mention the fact that you listened to this episode and heard about the deal. And uh, yeah, like I said, I was just going to randomly pick a couple of people who reach out to us um, to get a free coaching session. So uh, thank you again from the bottom of my heart. And uh, can't wait to give you the next episode next time. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to the AD20 show. To learn more about 8020 Records, you can check us out on pretty much any social media at 8020records or visit our website at www.8020records.com. Until next time, be happy, be healthy, and be productive.